You're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Adonis T. Rivy of the Integrative Biology Department. Welcome to the show, Adonis. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Adonis, you study frogs, is that right? For the most part. What do you do with them? My expected project is looking at the molecular processes that lead to sex determination in Xenopus lavis, or Xenopus lavis frogs, also known as the African clawed frog. Interesting. Uh, sex determination, that's just like the chromosome, right? right? XY versus X? Right, but in the case of Xenopus lavis, they are a ZW system. So what that simply means is that instead of, you know how in mammals, XX or the same sex chromosome leads to uh, females? It's the opposite in frogs. So the same sex chromosome, in this case it's ZZ, leads to males, and ZW leads to female. In Xenopus okay. lavis specifically, not all amphibians or I don't even think all frogs or anurans, which are fro- frogs and toads, use a ZW system. Amphibians are weird. Okay, so there are genetic determinants mm-hmm. similarly to human beings and other mammals and amphibians that decide whether or not a frog will develop into a male or a female. Yeah. But your research isn't so much focused on the genetic determinants of sex, right? Yeah, so it's actually pretty well established in the literature that temperature as well as chemical stressors can actually change, not only change sex ratios, but can also turn populations into like maybe 90 to 100% one way or the other. What kind of chemicals? Estrogenic ones, or ones similar to estrogen in nature. What does it mean that they're similar to estrogen in nature? So in short, they have similar uh, chemical structures and can bind to the estrogen receptors. So estrogen receptors are Mm -hmm. proteins that bond to estrogen and then produce an effect in a cell, right? Yep. What do they do? So I guess your question is, what are some of the things that estrogen typically does in the body? And frogs are just in a very, very general sense, I guess, for humans, because people are going to be interested in that. So it helps with calcium deposition, so strength in bones. It does a lot, and sometimes it's just really hard to remember everything. But definitely the one that everyone knows is kind of like helping with the menstrual cycle or playing a, a large part in the menstrual cycle. and also provides a lot of negative feedback, like, for example, sperm production. So a lot of times you hear that people are using anabolic steroids. They have a really high concentration of testosterone and also shrinking of their testes. What that is due to, due to is actually negative feedback. And it's thought that that negative feedback is not actually done by testosterone, but testosterone that's converted into estrogen in the brain. And it's actually estrogen that's causing that uh, shrinking of their testes. And actually sperm development as well. It's, again, not actually testosterone itself that is helping with sperm maturation, but it's actually testosterone being converted into estrogen as it's been um, found that sperm cells have high concentrations of aromatase, which are enzymes that convert testosterone to estrogen. It can also lead to increase in breast cancer. Estrogen can lead to an increase in breast cancer. Oh, yes. And breast cancer likelihood or aggressiveness. So estrogen does a lot. Wow, yeah. Different things. So estrogen is really important in both male and female bodies. Yep, and in particular in uh, reproduction. So what you're saying is... If an estrogen-like substance were to get into your body, it could really mess things up. Yeah, in high enough concentrations, yeah. What are some of the things that mimic estrogen? 
what are some of the things? So a lot of your, what are they called? BPAs? Those are the ones that I know of. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot more. Right. And, you know, you don't actually just have those things, but there are also chemicals that may potentially be activating the enzyme I mentioned earlier, aromatase, which actually converts testosterone to estrogen. So sometimes it's not that just that you're increasing the amount of exogenous estrogen being taken in by a body, but you may just be activating an enzyme that helps produce it. So just living our lives, we're really putting our bodies at a lot of risk is what you're saying. <laughs> More or less, yeah. It's kind of terrifying. I mean, it can be, but I guess I don't I don't worry too much about that. I think about these things and I take them into consideration. Like I stop microwaving plastics, for example, but I don't freak out about it. You know, I just try to on a, on a regular basis. If I, you know, if you learn something, you kind of just don't ignore it. You try to put it into practice if you think it's better for your health. So why are you concerned about how estrogen is affecting frogs instead of like humans? That's an interesting question. So the lab I've entered specifically works in amphibians. And the interesting thing is simply that when I applied to UC Berkeley, I wasn't necessarily applying to a project as much as I was applying to work under uh, my current PI. I really just wanted to, so I had learned of him while I was doing my master's degree, and I felt that I wanted to specifically learn from him. From reading his papers, for the most part, I recognize, I like the way this guy does science. A lot of the things he took into account, I mean, I, from what I remember, it was it was actually in particular his controls. I don't think I've ever, I don't remember someone having so many negative, or always taking into account having negative and positive controls in their papers. And just the thoroughness, from what I remember from reading all of his papers, or as many as I had read while doing my master's degree. It was really impressive, and I just always thought I want to be able to think that way. As well as the conclusions and just his ability to create like kind of like a big picture idea, how linking the cellular and molecular level to like ecological impacts, you know, like that's that's something I want to be able to do. And I think, to be quite honest, all scientists should probably strive to try and do. But that's that's why I in particular am worrying about the stuff in frogs, because that's what we have in the lab. But then also, I think working in amphibians is really interesting because they're really, really similar or similar to um, babies in the womb. Um, how so? I guess the, the 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 main way I think of it is how so frogs are amphibians and they can just take things up through their skin. Um, they're much, much more sensitive to chemicals than we are because of this. And I don't know, from my understanding of babies in utero, it's the same sort of deal. They're kind of living in this weird, aqueous, slushy environment, and they can kind of just take up things that their mom is exposed to. So essentially anything a mother's exposed to, the fetus is as well. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, yeah, it's not a mammal, and it's not a direct correlation to humans in the traditional sense, I guess people think of it. But definitely if you're thinking about effects in utero, I think it's a good analogy. You as a scientist, you're more just interested in like asking questions. You're interested in the scientific method. Do you ever wish that you didn't have to always worry about the application and you could just focus on doing science for science's sake? It's an excellent question. I think at one point I did. So I actually applied to graduate school the first time in 2015 and didn't get in. And I applied to actually a, 
a bunch of EEB programs or ecology, evolution, and behavior programs. And I didn't get into any. And I remember just thinking to myself after like I regrouped and tried to figure out how to get in. I applied again two years later, and that's how I ended up at Berkeley. But I remember thinking to myself, like, do I really want to apply to ecology, evolution, and behavior programs? Because I, f- I was learning that they weren't being funded as well as molecular programs. And my university that I was at was really heavy into molecular sciences. And, you know, I would talk to them, and they would tell me the same thing. And I was, you know, I was a little worried about it. But I think I'm at a point now where I, I kind of just am... I've learned also being around Tyrone, who's my PI. Again, I think you'll probably make the most interesting discoveries or the most interesting observations of your data when you kind of just let it be science for science. So I would say probably I've been doing that for most of my life and I'm kind of back to doing it again. But I do take in that I do take a, into account what's lucrative and what's not and I will in the future but I think for the most part I'm just going to worry about what I enjoy and what scientific questions are most interesting to me because as you said I'll be honest with you organism cause it doesn't matter if it's an interesting question it's an interesting question to me and I'm going to probably pursue it if I have the ability to how did you become so interested in science (laughs) are you were you always just like Science—it's the nah, best thing in the world. Nah, not at all. I would say it probably took um, undergrad my probably the fall semester, or I'm sorry, the spring semester. So the f- second semester of my sophomore year, I remember I, was, I had a pretty good GPA, and I just wanted to keep it really high. But it was—I was undeclared also, so it was time though for me to take a science. That's what uh, the, the, the advisors were pushing me, and I was like, "Dang, I really don't want to take." these courses. And at the time, they only offered two biology courses for that semester. And it was field biology and human biology. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to be outside, so I'm not going to do field biology. But I was thinking, I don't care anything about humans, but I'll just take this stupid course anyway. So I took it and ended up loving it. And I was like, well, I mean, if I like human biology, I'm probably going to like regular biology or whatever it's called here at the university. So I declared myself as a biology major. And pretty much ever since then, you know, you, I think I took uh, biology courses first and then chemistry. And then I was like, oh, chemistry makes biology make sense, at least at the cellular molecular level. And then I took physics and I was like, oh, I guess physics makes chemistry take sense. So then from that point on, I realized the usefulness and the, how interesting science in general just really is, especially when it comes to asking questions, because I've learned over the years that it's all about asking uh, I don't, maybe I shouldn't say the right question, but the most appropriate question for what you're trying to understand. Was learning to ask the right question hard for you? Um, I think I just always had a childlike curiosity about stuff. And then, you know, it was easy to apply that to science. I think the harder part for me was figuring out if the experiments I was running in undergrad and in the master's degree were actually answering my questions. And, you know, sometimes it was, well, is that even the right experiment? And then other times it was, well, do I also have the proper controls? But I think actually asking the questions has always been fairly easy. I'm just figuring out, is my method the best way to answer that question? Did it take time to learn how to actually use science to answer questions? Still learning. (laughs) Still learning. (laughs) When did you first get involved in research? I want to say it was my it was a first semester of my junior year. So I actually played collegiate football at my old university and I had actually stopped playing season 
or I'm sorry, week three. Oops, week three of the season. And I remember being in cell biology and just, I had like 40 hours a week now. Like, for, or collegiate sports is like a full-time job. So I had like an extra 40 hours a week. So I was just like, ah, I guess I'll do something to fill in that gap. Because at first it's like real cool to have all that free time. But then when you're kind of used to doing something, you kind of just don't know what to do with yourself. So um, I ended up uh, in cell biology mentioning to someone that I wanted to join a lab. Someone overheard me that was already in the lab. I ultimately began working in and they were like hey we're looking for someone you should just join and I joined from then on and that was the fall semester of my junior year I have a couple questions uh so you had devoted so much time to football yeah do you think you could have gotten involved in research if you had stayed with football um yeah 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 as summer opportunities Right. So my university did uh, give uh, NSF funding for the summer. We had like an LSAMP grant, the Lewis Stokes Association for Minority Participation. So we had that uh, NSF grant. And I definitely would have probably tried to get involved at some point um, during the summers. But because I stopped playing football, I was able to just do I did research all year round. And even if I wasn't actively in the lab, I would end up presenting my research at uh, conferences. So, yeah, at some point I would have while playing football. Even if you weren't in the lab, you would have acted. You would have pre- presented your research. So the way it would have worked was, I would have done the research over the summer, which is about ten weeks, right? And then I would be. I would have probably been able to just present that at different because that's actually how it worked for a lot of folks. I was probably the only person in my lab that worked year round, um, and you know, a lot of folks just came in during the summer, and I would train slash learn from them, and then you know we'd present during the semester. At a different conferences. So when you first got involved in research, was it, were you natural? Were you good at it? Hell no. Wait, can I say that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh my God, I was terrible. I was like really good in lecture in all my science courses, but pretty terrible in lab up to that point. And I remember, you know, like cover slips? There's yeah. probably about seven different times in one day. I had glass shards or plexiglass or whatever that stuff is in my hands. I'm just like cracking the cover slips while trying to put them on slides. It took me uh, probably a good four four months to be any good at anything. And it was only because I had too much pride to not be good at it. So I just sucked and I wanted to get better. And that's what really kept me in lab because I hated it initially. But I felt like it was in my mind. I just worked it up in my mind that this is going to be a good life experience for whatever I want to do. Because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew I was a biology major. And I was like, whatever I want to do, this will be, it'll look good on a resume but also probably helped me in some way. I just didn't know how at the time. But I was terrible. How did you develop your your drive to just, like, not stop? Oh, Where does um, that come from? Probably just my upbringing. I don't know. I can't, I can't tell you any stories that I remember, but, like, off the top of my head. But I kind of just feel like my parents didn't want me to be a quitter. Um, that's I, I do remember them saying that but you know it wasn't like some time some moment I remember some speech they gave me it was just kind of like a thing they just always said and I would just remember when I did finally tell them I stopped playing football I was I was I shouldn't say I was surprised because my parents had a lot of faith in me but I, a part of me was surprised about how much they understood I think they had recognized how unhappy I was over the course of uh, probably like two point something years I was playing in college and it wasn't inherently playing college football it was specifically a team I was on 
And I think they just, when I articulated it to them specifically, my, what my reasons were specifically, they really understood and they supported me. But um, I would say it probably comes from them to just, yeah, I think there's just like this idea of just having pride in what you do and finishing and doing your job well that they kind of just instilled at me at some point. I don't remember when, but. Right. Yeah. So you had really supportive parents. That's yeah. yeah, yeah. Honestly, I don't. Yeah, no other way to put it. It's weird though because their support is. Uh, I just know it's there. I don't like it either. Maybe <laughs> I shouldn't say I don't like support. It's just. I guess I again I was maybe I shouldn't complain about this. But I was one of those kids. I was an only child for a lot of years. Even though I have brothers and sisters, I I was raised alone, so I got a lot of attention. So you know, there's just plenty of times where I'm like, yo back off (laughs) 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 yeah i love my parents and yeah they were very even to this day they're very supportive of what i think they have always been supportive and just kind of wanted the best for me i mean i guess that's all parents but yeah just a reminder that you're tuned into 90.7 fm listening to the graduates i'm andrew saintsing and i'm speaking with adonis rivi of the department of integrative biology okay so we've covered wire and science yeah or actually, how? I don't know if you asked me why I'm in science. Do you have an answer for that? I like it. You <laughs> know, honestly, I really don't know what else to tell you. I honestly, I think if I wasn't doing science, I'd probably be like a personal trainer. Or I'd be like following that route. Because that's the other thing I like to do. Personal training or probably like personal development. I really like helping people become the best them. You like helping people become the best them? Yeah, in a very literal sense. So do you think you want to teach? Yeah. Yeah? I do. And initially when I first got here, I had some as a... So at my old university, I was an adjunct professor because they didn't have a way to actually pay graduate students. Like there weren't any stipends and stuff. So they allowed us to become adjunct professors with the university and we taught. And that's how we were paid. Where here, you know, we're back to being... Or I'm back to being a regular TA. And it's a different role and it's nice because it's not as much stress. And I just had some, but I did have really weird interactions with the students when I first got here, which kind of initially changed how I felt about potentially teaching. Um, but I let it go. I, I'm pretty sure I want to teach at some point. So you want to be a professor? You want to stay in academics because you want to? You yeah. like doing research and yeah. you like teaching? Yeah. And I think I, I definitely want to do it at a university, like a not like at a community college. Like I think I'd like to do it at a university, just maybe a smaller one. Mm-hmm where undergraduates are the focus like at my old university we don't have many grad students at my old university why do you think science is so cool i think inherently i think i think i think it's i think it's really cool to be in for two reasons i guess the first is an inherent reasoning which is again i guess we'll never truly be able to ask to i can't how do i put this Science, or rather, what we learn about the natural and physical world is really a product of how we question it, right? So we'll probably never actually get ultimate truth from anything. But the fact that we can find some truth and understanding in our natural and physical phenomena that occur is really dope. Um, A a better understanding of the universe, essentially, right? And I just think understanding how things work is cool. But also, which a lot of folks I think is probably most important, and again, this is just a personal opinion, is learning how to do science and how to think about questioning 
and following up your questions with experiments is really useful just in everyday life. And I think it's a tool that probably if we're taught to more people, there'd be a lot less problems in the world. Especially if you're talking, I think a lot of problems in this world are due to individuals having their own problems and those problems be taken out on others and it kind of just being this thing that perpetuates. And if you know, you can sit back and take these observations on yourself, try to figure out how to work through them. You don't have as much of these things happening in the world. Interesting. I don't think everything's eliminated, but I just think, you know, most everyday problems can probably be solved by sitting back and thinking about it and figuring out what's the best mode of action for you. So, I mean, even if you adopt this scientific approach, right, you still, you're still a human being. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you're going to eliminate all of it. No, I agree. All of human problems. I mean, I try. And, I, and it's it's weird because I I think that's what's helped me become... Uh, I think it was actually the other way around where attempting to be objective has helped me in my science. So I was always, I always at least try to be objective about things because as you already know, and a few people out there may know already, my life model is to not be a hypocrite. And I don't know, that, that helps with doing your best to not be a hypocrite allows you to be more objective about things than you would be if your primary goal wasn't to be a hypocrite. And, you know, that's helped in science with whether it's like, you know, me doing my best to not be emotionally invested in an experiment or reading a paper where I'm just trying to look for what the figures are presenting or telling me. And if it the story coincides with their figures and does what everything they're showing me coincide with my prior knowledge. Yeah, but we're humans, though. It's hard. Yeah. It ain't really that hard cool. for me, though. So you... uh. So you would say you kind of had the scientific mindset before you even started with science or science kind of? Uh, yes. I would just say I've, it's been more refined. Right. Mm-hmm. I think working in science has, first what it did was probably help me pay even more attention to detail. But then lately what it's been doing is reminding me of to not lose the forest for the trees, as people say, right? right. So to recognize the bigger picture that these details ultimately just help tell a story about you're interesting because your worldview is kind of oh thanks almost already set up for science is what you're saying oh i think yeah I think. but science cult colors everything mm-hmm. in your life the way you look at everything yes i would probably agree with that however i would also agree with your initial statement which was i was kind of just always raised to be um very observant of my environment, probably because I did not live in the safest of places growing up. So my parents just made a really big deal about being aware of your surroundings and um, having a plan of action if something did happen, right? And I think I've, I've just carried that everywhere I've gone, and I, I used it in my schooling also. And yeah, it was like, you know, I kind of had like a real basic level understanding of how to think about different situations or think about what I'm reading. And again, like you mentioned, science helped cultivate that ability. And then now I kind of just, I still view the world in that manner, but just in a much better way. So science, so you think that lots of people in different fields would benefit from thinking scientifically yes i think everyone who does everything will however <laughs> there's a caveat to that i've been told that 
my pragmatism can be thought of as a pessimistic or what's the word not having emotion or compassion but i don't know i don't think it's that big of a deal (laughs) (laughs) i mean it depends you know i get it it depends i think it's again contextual i've learned to do a better job balancing as i think a lot of folks probably have to do at some point with something but yeah no no it, it does matter i'm being silly i think my ability to again analyze myself has allowed me to have the sort of empathy I have for everyone is just that I think I've also given myself a limit to which empathy is actually useful versus where, you know, some other idea may be more useful. Because, yeah, I mean, compassion and empathy, they're very important and they're going to help the world be a better place. However, I think there's also a point where... Um, See, it's hard because it's hard we don't have a very specific situation in mind. But there's a point where empathy just isn't enough. And there's something else you can do that'll be much more useful for something to be better. As vague as that sounds. <laughs> I just think there's an upper limit max to how useful empathy and compassion are. Like, you know, if you meet someone, they tell you their problem, but then they keep making the same mistake over and over and over and over and over, and over again. At that point, it's useless to have empathy for a person because they know what they're doing. They probably have some decent idea of a way to get out of it. You know, because, you know, most people's things are not serious problems anyway. Most things people tell you about anyway. There's a there's a max. Because, like, you know, like we mentioned before, if someone's like, just keep on making the same mistake over and over. If you care about this person, aren't you going to tell them, hey, obviously what you're doing does not work. Stop messing around. Get your stuff together and let's you know let's move on another path and i get it it's not easy for everyone to change and to make changes but i mean from my observations not many people actually attempt to make change especially when they know they should so i mean i don't know if empathy helps with that i mean yeah i have it still it's just i don't know if expressing it to those individuals actually helps them do better urging them to change does though with i guess like an empathetic undertone (laughs) but i mean ultimately i think just urging someone to do better for themselves is probably your better bet but i guess you know you're right see look i'm doing it now i'm like thinking about i guess ultimately you have to do it from a place of empathy and they know that you're concerned and it'll help yeah no i get it i'm just like i said i want everybody to be the best they can be it's just i guess i have a coarse way of going about it at times do you ever feel like academia forces you to focus so much on one area of study that you don't get to explore other areas as much as you would like Mm, i know that may be a feeling folks have but for me no because i think one in undergrad i think so what I hear from Berkeley students here and what I had at my old university, I think the schools do a good job, you know, at least those these two schools do, of making sure you get a nice breadth of different things, of different subject material. But even in um, graduate school, I feel like, I don't know, you have an option. You have the option to work all day, at least here at Berkeley, right? Or at least in our department, or, you know, maybe I should speak very specifically, at least in my lab, I have the option to work all day and I have the option to work. And, you know, do things that I find fulfilling or that I want to learn about every day. Like, I can do both every day. 
as long as I, you know, manage my time right. And I have a very good suspicion that's most of the people in our department and probably most people in Berkeley. But maybe, I don't know. But um, I don't know. I think graduate school is a good time to, you're going to have to, you know, you can't just, I don't know too many people that will actually be able to work all day, every day and truly be productive. Right. So at some point you're probably going to have to learn about other things to keep, I don't know, just keep life interesting. Yeah. Well, Donis, I've had a lot of fun. Thanks so much for being on the show. Do you have any thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with about anything at all? One thing I can think of is, uh, you know, honestly, science isn't as hard as you think it is. You know, if you if you think you have some small interest in it, I think at the very least, if you have some interest in it, maybe just even learn the vague idea that is the scientific process. I guess I say it's vague because, you know, different people ask what, what it is exactly. But in just short, how to think scientifically and how to think about things in a manner that is going to be most productive in solving whatever problem you have, right? Yeah, great. So you're saying anybody can get involved. Anybody. Yeah, it's a great message. Nice. Well, thanks again. It was my pleasure. I've been speaking today with Adonis T. Rivi of the Integrated Biology Department. If you'd like to learn more about Adonis, he is pursuing his PhD in Tyrone Hayes' lab.